Our scripture reading today is Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So potent passage, and um, I am delighted, and I want to make a reference because last week, some of you uh, thought, I, um, as I was running back and forth, I mentioned that. I, I may have failed to mention, last week I was preaching at both of our locations. I preached at three services, so three sermons. And I know for some of you, you, you thought, wait, why is he saying he's driving back and forth? Some of you thought, that, why is the preacher late to church. So I wasn't late. I was actually preaching at three uh, services. <laughs> so I was driving because of that. Uh, that happens once in a while just because uh, we like to make sure we're connected and, and, uh, and see one another. And, um, but this morning we're beginning a new series and I'm excited about it. We, we're moving from the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew, to a letter called Romans. And we're going to look at one specific chapter in Romans. Uh, it's, it's a powerful chapter. It's full of a lot. Romans uh, is a letter that was written in 57, around 57 uh, AD, and it was written by a man named Paul to encourage. There are a lot of themes, a lot of people uh, write about what are the themes of Romans. But as we're looking at Romans chapter 8, this specific chapter, it is a place where Paul is trying to highlight assurance, encouragement to people who are wanting to follow Jesus. Imagine being a Christian in a city like Rome, where actually if you said you were a Christian, they might throw you into a place where lions would eat you as entertainment, or they would use you as a torch uh, for parties. Uh, It was not an easy thing to say, I follow Jesus, for people who who are really suffering for persecution. There, also, there was also infighting. People were, were struggling with the fact that, uh, how do we make sense of people that are not like me, yet they are following Jesus? Can, can that happen? Sound pretty familiar today. And what does it mean for us as Christians, as Paul was trying to instruct them, what does it mean for them to go out into their city and care for the city they live in? What does it mean for them not to just huddle and hide from Rome, but to actually move into Rome and transform it even by 
their persecution. This passage in particular is drawn out in Romans chapter 8 as one of assurance, one that is to assure us. And don't we really want assurance? Don't we need assurance? We, we're constantly people who, who, and it's interesting to me, when, whenever we uh, receive criticism, we're used to it, but whenever we re- receive affirmation, we're uncomfortable with it. We've increasingly become that kind of culture because, and yet we long for it. I think we're uncomfortable because we long to be assured that we're secure, that we're safe, that we're loved, that we're known. And yet it feels difficult. I remember uh, when I was, uh, I've, I've done this several times in my life and I've loved doing it, but doing a prison ministry, a ministry where you actually go and spend time with inmates and uh, some of you may have done that or are currently doing that. It's an incredible ministry and it's, I find it for me personally, it really draws a lot of, out of me. And I remember going specifically this one time uh, when I was younger, I've done it multiple times throughout my life, but when I was younger and uh, it was a max, maximum security prison in, in Texas and uh, <clears throat> dry, dusty area. They take us into kind of the beginning holding just to kind of say, okay, everybody good, empty your pockets, you know, before you go inside. They kind of open the door and they let us in and it's like, and they shut the door and they're like, okay, go, go meet people. And I was like, oh, we're not going with him. Like we're just meeting people. So I started wandering around this maximum security prison, just talking to different people. Is it fascinating experience? And, and I remember uh, one of the best moments to me was I went out into the yard, I don't know all the terminology, but into the yard itself, like the quad, and I was thinking, how do I, how do I strike up conversations with these guys? And they're all working out, they're lifting weights. I thought, well, that, I know how to do that. Maybe I can just work out with these guys, and maybe we can start a conversation. So I start working out with these guys, and it was hilarious. You know, we're all grunting and being meatheads like I am. And, and so, and, and thus opened up some doors of conversation, but I looked up, I, I finished you know, doing whatever round of bench press I was doing and was a lot less than these guys. And, and I'm looking around and, and I'm looking at the walls and I'm thinking, I'm working out in a prison yard. Is there some sort of irony here? Some sort of strange feeling? It's like, I'm doing all this work and yet I feel like I'm not going anywhere. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working out. I may be doing something physical and healthy, yet I'm surrounded by what seems like defeat to me. And isn't that often what we feel like in, as Christians? We can move and work and work and move and do all these things and come to church and read our Bible and pray, but oftentimes it feels as though we're working and operating in some sort of a world of defeat, as if oh, just, we just need to keep going, just keep doing it and it'll produce something. What if there's more to it than that, though? What if it's more than just some sort of you trying to make something about working out your Christianity and yet knowing that you're doing it in victory and joy and delight. Isn't that why we stop reading the Bible? Isn't that why we stop praying? Why church seems so like, ah, uh, I need it, don't need it. Because it becomes one of these things where we're just working out and we wonder where is it going? What if it was like this? As a friend of ours, uh, many of you may have read his book uh, named Alan Williams. He wrote a book called Walk On. And it talks about when his walking on to the Wake Forest basketball team years ago, 
And it's just his stories about that. And one of the things that really the, the main story that he's trying to say is of all his years of working hard for this team, he only got to play for just literally a couple minutes. A couple minutes out of years. Think about all the games. Think about all the time that went by. And he says that he went in when he got put into the, his favorite game, he was able to steal the ball only to drive down to the other side of the court and just get totally rejected. I mean, just totally no soup for you, ball out, like gone, like rejected. And he just said, it was one of my favorite things. Why would he say that's his favorite thing? Because the team was so far ahead, there was no way for them to lose. He could go in and freely play and get, steal the ball and get rejected and enjoy the whole atmosphere because there was no way he could lose. He was surrounded in victory. That is actually what Romans chapter eight is saying to us. It is not us saying, you need to work harder. It's actually saying, do you have the assurance that you're so surrounded in victory that God has given you so much that you can actually live, get rejected and do some things well and yet know that it's all for a direction, that God is behind all of it for the purposes of your good and his glory. That's Romans chapter eight. In fact, one commentator said this, one of the most famous, his name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to what he says about this chapter in itself. He said, it is one of the bright, that Romans, uh, that this chapter is one of the brightest gems of all. Someone has said that in the whole of the scriptures, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is the epistle to the Romans. And that of these, chapter eight is the brightest gem in the cluster. The most moving chapter in Romans is this chapter. And the reason that people talk about it like that is because it starts with this, there is therefore now no condemnation. You're moving from something that was under condemnation to living in a totally new freedom. That's where we're entering into. That's the assurance that Lord willing over the next few weeks that you will begin to see and mind out of this chapter. And there are two things in these verses, as much as we could spend a lot of time in 11 verses here, two things that Paul wants to get across to us. One is that you have a new position. You have a new position in your relationship to God and to everything else, a new position. The second thing is you have a new experience now. You can actually experience Christianity differently. You don't have to feel as though you're working out in a prison yard surrounded by defeat. You can actually engage in living with Jesus and for him in a way of victory and joy, even when you're rejected. And the first is his position, his position here. And, and right off the bat, we're supposed to notice something because he starts off in verse eight, verse one of chapter eight says, there's therefore now no condemnation. He's moving from chapter seven to eight, okay? So chapter seven talks and it says 31 times mentions the law right? Living according to the law. 31 times and only one time in chapter 7 is the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the person of the Trinity mentioned once. And then you move to this chapter where it's the complete reversal. The Holy Spirit is now mentioned 21 times, 11 times just in these verses. Paul is wanting us to understand something. There's a new relationship there's something new here. There's a new position that we have. There's therefore now no condemnation. That word condemnation 
is actually a legal word. Where what he's wanting us to see, let me give you a visual image. And maybe it'll make some of you nervous. But it's walking into a courtroom. It's driving downtown. It's walking up the steps to the courthouse and actually entering in and entering into one of the courtrooms to learn about what, who am I? That's what he's wanting us to see. He's wanting us to see that painting that picture of a courtroom. And he begins with condemnation for us to understand that we are now freed from any condemnation. The language here is to say, it should be a really good cultural context for us because condemnation for us in today's language is a word that we hear often. It's one that is linked to, please don't judge me for this. You're condemning me for this. It means that we were under condemnation at one point, but now it means this. Listen, this. it means the legal language explaining that we have no charges against us nor anything punishable. Imagine going into that courtroom or that courthouse downtown. You know you have a litany of things that are gonna be brought up. And yet what comes first is no condemnation. There is nothing chargeable here for you. Nothing punishable. Nothing. And yet here's what's interesting about starting in that phrase is that all of us feel condemned. But Paul is trying to get us to see something, that your status is totally different. There's a difference between your feeling condemned and that you are condemned. You have to understand the difference in Christianity isn't your feeling, it's not your experience first, it's your position first. There's a pattern that Paul uses often and it's the indicative leading to the imperative. And I know this sounds funny, but we live this way all the time. I'm just trying to drawing it out. The indicative is the fact of who you are, right? We all do this. If we talked about who you are, there's facts of who you are. The imperative are the commands, how it comes out of you. And what Paul does over and over, every time he writes a letter, if you've ever read one or if you're planning on trying to read one, You'll read the fact that he says, first, if you're ever gonna live out a command, you can't just start doing things. You have to first know the fact of who you are and we have to know that we're no longer condemned. There has to be a different status, a different change. Because he moves from there even to verse two, he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that no condemnation, he's layering, look what he's doing. He's an excellent, excellent lawyer. Because what Paul does is he knows exactly where we're going. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa, 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 wait, I feel condemned. No, 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 you've been set free. Let me tell you what freedom is. Freedom means that you were under this punishment and now it's been removed from you. That word law, in other words, means the law of Moses there. When it says the law, it's saying the law of Moses. And it means in every way, when you were stacked up against the law, you fell short. In every way, you have missed the mark. And yet, the spirit, the law of the spirit has set you free. You've been freed from that, taken away. St. Augustine, who's a great theologian, put it this way to help us think through this. He said, the law was given that grace might be sought out. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. Another way is put by John Bunyan, a great um, <clears throat> author who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He says, he put it in a poem. He said, run, run, the law demands. 
but gives me neither feet nor hands. You see what he's saying? The law says, you need to work hard, right? You need to work hard, but it doesn't give you any feet or hands to do it. And he says this, better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. It changes, not just from our position, but it changes the way we can see who we are. It's given us new life. It's freed us. It's, it's incredible here. And here's how it does it. Then he layers it one more time. We say, well, I don't feel free. How am I free? Verse three, listen to this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by what? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned it in the flesh. Look, look, I've met with so many people over the years and many of you in this room may be in this place. You may be in one of two camps or, or more where you go, okay, I, I know the law, I know what God demands and I, why do I constantly feel condemned by it? Why do I constantly feel guilty about my relationship with God? And many other people I've talked to who may say that they're not Christians or exploring Christianity or, or wondering, and, and I've talked to them over and over about, hey, I know my sin, I know this, that I understand morally I've failed, but why do I need Jesus to substitute for me? Why do I need this Jesus? Here's the link. The thing about it in our position is that Jesus took on every aspect of our failure. When we sang that song, one with himself, I cannot die, what we're saying is that Jesus actually comes into the courtroom and he says, everything that you are punished for, I will take on. Everything that the list that you think that you should be, I'm taking that on, it's on me. Look, we live in, as if you're here and you follow Jesus, oftentimes we live in a state of guilt because we are constantly looking to ourselves to resolve it. We're constantly trying to fix that in ourselves. The question of why do I feel exposed often? Another pastor friend of mine, Ricky Jones said it this way. He said, because your true God hasn't forgiven you yet. If you live in a state of condemnation or guilt, it may be that your true God, little g, not the God who sent his son to take it on, but the other God that you continue to give your life to will not forgive you and has no mercy. It will continue to tell you, you need to live up because you're gonna be condemned if you don't. Isn't that what it's like for us? This is why it has to begin with our position. God says, I've sent my son to take it on. We often feel guilty for things that we shouldn't and don't feel guilt for things that we should because we're so twisted in our mind about what I need to do to get out from underneath the guilt. But here's what God is saying. It is not about any of that. You are already out from underneath it. Look, it's not a matter of your feeling. Your feeling condemned or not does not put Jesus on the throne or not. Your feeling doesn't make you a Christian. Praise God for that. Because there are plenty of times I wake up and feel like I am the worst person. I'm such a fraud. And yet, you know what makes me not a fraud? It isn't because I'm in a position to be your pastor. And it isn't because I can do healthy spiritual things that outweigh the bad. It's because I go back to a verse like this and that sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in my likeness, he sent his son. 
to take that on so that it could be removed, so it could be positionally changed, that my position before him is different, not because I can do anything about it, but because I have to look back over and over to the one who has set this record straight. He has put it in his son. This is why Christianity is so unique, friends. It is so unique because God doesn't just say morality, you need to create a better place between you and your morals. You need to create a better way for you and the law. God says, here's the law. There's no way you can meet it. How am I gonna take care of it? By sending my own son to take on the condemnation that you and I deserve. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what he does. And <clears throat> look, if you're here this morning and, and you may say, what is this Christianity? Why be a Christian? <clears throat> because the fact of this is that Jesus has to atone for our sin. You and I have things that we can never get out from underneath. The condemnation that you and I have is something we can't take on ourselves, but God has done it. There's a fundamental difference between that. Thank you. Huge difference between the condemnation that we live under and what God has done. He's changed our position. He's changed our place. And he's fulfilled every aspect of that law. What would it be like for us to have that as a resource over and over? When you feel that condemnation, what would it be like for you to go back to that place? Wait, there's therefore now no condemnation. What would it be like for you to go back to that place? Even when, yes, there are things in your life that are bad, things that are life in our lives that we twist and change. How would it change our affections, our love for everything else if we look back to the love that is set on us in Christ? One with himself, I cannot die. That is your position. There's no opinion that you have about it. Look, there's a, a story from a friend of mine, another pastor, who said I mean, he was an art major in college. And he remembers uh, when he was studying and he was going to a specific art gallery. And he decided that he would kind of walk through and give his opinions on everything. He was walking with a friend. And he thought, well, I've studied art. I was an art major. I'm going to give my kind of, you know, opinions on these things. He was talking loudly and kind of saying, oh, the contrast here is terrible. What about th this color? I can't believe this person used this color. All of a sudden, a few minutes in, he hears behind him, oh, you think you could do better? Well, he didn't realize the artist was standing right behind him. And the artist actually says, you know, gives a little uh, <laughs> soliloquy to him and as he's just totally embarrassed points down to the bottom of that painting and says, you see that right there? You see that price? Someone's gonna pay for that. And he realized something that was brilliant. He said it wasn't about, the painting's price wasn't a matter of opinion. It was based on what someone was willing to pay. It is not based on your opinion that Jesus has been set in this place. There is no amount of our understanding. This is why his historical flesh, he actually took on flesh. He took on the sin that ravages you and no amount of your opinion can change the fact that God had to set that cost on him in order for you to live freely. That's the only way Christian freedom works. 
is to do that. That is our position, that's it. But what about the experience? Because he moves from there to more of this. He moves from spirit and law to another word he says over and over, flesh. I don't know if you noticed that when it was being read. The word flesh. Because that's where we actually experience all of that. Oh man, I see things in myself. I can't stand and can't believe that are there. How do we deal with the everyday? This is what God does in that. It's incredible. He says that he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but then according to the spirit, for those who live, uh, verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. That word setting minds is not about thinking. It's not getting your brain to go, okay, I need to think on the spirit. It actually in the Greek is a word meaning more, more than a mental process. It's encompassing all faculties of your soul. Because the word flesh isn't so much of you wrestling. Here's what Paul's saying. Flesh isn't just sin. Flesh actually is an orientation to the world. Spirit is an orientation to the world. He's actually presenting two radically opposing worlds. And he's not saying we don't struggle. What he's saying is, if you live in the spirit, yeah, you'll struggle, but you're in the spirit. It's not a sin. It's not sin so much that he's talking about. He's saying, is there an orientation for you to live in the flesh or in the spirit? That's a whole life question, not just an everyday question. And here's what's amazing about it. He gives us the Holy Spirit to change us and work in us in a process over and over, slowly. It's not an easy thing. The, the, the distinctive of Christianity is that he first sent his son in flesh to take on our sin. But the second distinctive is that he sent his spirit to enliven us, to live for him. So that even when you fail, even when you fall, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It says that he is in you. He chooses to be in you. He takes up that word dwell to take up residence in you. So that you can live in him. Change in process doesn't come by you every day going, I did everything great today. Again, it's not by the feeling of it. Now feelings are a part of it. But it's driving you to say, there's someone in me working in me to make this change real. I love the way the, the great theologian Bono put it. <clears throat> he said this, your nature is, hard, is a hard thing to change. It takes time. I've heard of a lot of people who have life-changing, miraculous turnarounds, people set free from addiction after a single prayer, relationships saved where both parties let go and let God. But it was not like that for me. For all that, I was lost and I am found. It is probably more accurate to say I was really lost and I'm a little less so at the moment. And then a little less and a little less again. That to me is the spiritual life, the slow reworking and rebooting of the computer at regular intervals, reading the small print of the service manual. It has slowly rebuilt me in a better image. It has taken years though, and it is not over yet. Thank you, Bono. What a beautiful encouragement of how we're being changed. This is not something, yes, we can see massive things in our life, but it is a war going on. I, I was in, uh, I told y'all, I was at the beach several weeks ago, earlier in the summer for our vacation. Um, 
and hurricane, uh, not hurricane, tropical storm Cindy came through. And it was interesting because uh, we got to go down to the beach, but we couldn't go in the water. So we got to kind of see the, the storm, but not really be in the water because it was too unsafe, double red flag, couldn't swim, that whole thing. But you know what was fascinating is when I went down to the beach, uh, I stood there on, in the shore and you could just see what the, it did. And the gulf is usually this powdery sand. It's usually kind of like, you know, you walk through it and it, it, you know, it runs through your feet. But it was just matted and flat. I mean, just all the way to the, all the, way to the water. Hardened, packed. The waves were coming in. The water was coming in really far. The waves were crashing so hard. And then when you stood there, you could feel it. You know, you can sometimes feel the undertow pulling you under. This was unbelievable to me. It was very different. It was, it was standing there, but not just yanking the sand out. It was literally in, in inches of water pulling me like this. Because the wind and the work of what was going on in that storm was destructive. Look, often the, the, the same word, Greek word for wind is the same for the spirit. And I think we think that God's work in us is this maybe calm, pretty nice breeze. It's not. It is a, it is a tropical storm, Cindy. It is something that he is at work battling in ways that you and I don't have the moxie for. We can't stand firm-footed and he is in us doing this ravaging work against the powers that we constantly feel. And he is in victory. Here's the thing about it. We are not striving in Christianity because Jesus doesn't finish his life by saying strive without ceasing as Buddha said to his disciples. Jesus says it is finished. There is a reason he said it is finished. It is because his work on the cross is done. Your work can begin in light of victory. You're not surrounded in defeat. You can experience this. You can step into it. You can set your mind on the things of the spirit not because you're thinking hard enough, but because positionally your mind is now his. He has taken it for himself. Look, if you're here this morning again, I wanna to appeal to you, if you may not be a Christian, to say here's the distinctive of Christianity, here's the difference, is the fact that living for God and living in him is so different than taking on just a whole new set of morals. It's the fact that it is surrounded in victory. It's not trying to behaviorally make you just better. It's not. And anytime you hear that, it's actually just scratching the surface. Below it is that you have to have the indicative fact that you are in Christ to live the imperative command, love me, you follow me. Do these things. Otherwise, it, it, it can be a complete failure. And here's one of the greatest pictures that we have of it is right in front of us. It's this table. This table is an unbelievable picture of what God is saying. Because in this passage, Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit are all represented. The full Trinity, even if we're like the Trinity, that's like a huge concept. Let's bring it down to an illustration. God has set this table for us to come forward. He has sent his son Jesus as a sacrifice for you and I to take his body and blood. And the Holy Spirit himself makes this effective 
in your body. The Holy Spirit doesn't make this wine and and bread actual body and blood of Jesus. What it does though is, is he feeds you by faith. How we're one in him, I cannot die, is because when you take in this body and blood, the Holy Spirit makes you you commune with him. You're with him. You're saying, God, I want to sit at this table and reorder my loves, change my affections through my position and you change my experience so I can go out. This is the experience. But we have it because we have a position in him. If you're here this morning and you say, I don't know if my position is in him. Maybe I just rely completely on my experience in him. I would, I would encourage you not to take from this table. It says actually the flesh is hostile to God. It, would, it might be even hostile for you to take body and blood of Jesus when you don't really believe it. Not, hey, and if you're here this morning, it's not to say that you struggle. We all struggle. Strugglers can come to this table. What I'm saying is if you're here this morning and you're more than struggling, and you're saying, I don't know if I wanna be in the position with Jesus. I would encourage you to stay in your seat or come forward, fold your hands and receive prayer. But don't take of this table. Those of you here that you find yourself in the spirit know that you can come take this, that it would transform you from the inside out. Let's stand together as we will.